Father, we come before you and ask for your wisdom and insight, understanding that only you can provide. We know that your word is rich, and we ask that we would become wealthy because we know what your word says. And being able to give a reason for the hope that lies within, we ask that you would help us sharpen what we know. And by your Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray that you would bring to remembrance those things which we need to witness to others. And help us in this day and age in which we live that we might know the right response, what to do, what to say, when to speak, when to be silent. For you hold all wisdom in your hands. And we ask for just a little bit of it, Lord. And you promise to give it. So we, we thank you, Lord, for the word that you provide for us. We thank you for the fellowship. And we ask that you would bless both. In Jesus' name, amen. The idea that we're going through biblical ethics and also answering theological questions. There was a case in point. I was just talking to Nate and Rick out there. They went to PB uh, yesterday. Was it Nate? Yeah, yesterday. And they were witnessing down there. And there were two people that they met, both ex-Christians. One a pastor and the other one went to seminary. Is that correct? And they had a deconversion experience. And they said they read the Bible and that's why they decided not to be Christians anymore. And, you know, they were telling me, I wanted to know some of the arguments, you know, that they were making for that. They said one of them was, well, King David, you know, because he committed adultery with Bathsheba, the child was the one who paid the price and the child was taken. And that's why God is evil and you can't trust him for what he did. And of course, you know, you read other parts of scripture, which is better The day of a man's death or the day of his birth? What does scripture say? It's the day of his death. Because you miss out on more sin. You miss out on more corruption. And the child who dies as an infant is better than somebody who lives 90 years because they don't have to experience all the evil in this life. So if you read all of scripture in context, the retort would be, it's better that the child went to heaven to be with God rather than be on this earth and commit all kinds of sin. It's, it's just the understanding of scriptures that you need to be able to give to people when you're going back and forth in a, a friendly conversation. Now, that's why we're going through biblical ethics is because this is down where uh, J. Vernon McGee used to say, where the rubber meets the road. And by the way, he's still on KBRT radio. If you're interested in that, uh, you can get that through a TuneIn app. Uh, or listen to KBRT 740. I think it's out of Avalon still and a couple of other places. Anyhow, let's get back into the message. Now, as I did last week, it has always been my desire to transfer the teachings of the Bible into everyday life, to take the stories, proverbs, parables, and teachings of the Bible and make them applicable in our time and culture. I want to enable all of us to think biblically about everything we do and act in line with the scriptures, even when it is extremely difficult. Now, I seek for myself and hope to impart to everyone else the ability to influence the world through the word, which is the Bible. Now, to meet this goal, I started this series on biblical ethics. And two weeks ago, I also encouraged everyone, if they had a Bible question, to submit it in writing on a prayer card, a piece of paper. And I will take the time to answer those questions, just deposit them in the uh, agape box in the foyer. Now, in a moment, I'm going to give you those questions. There's 11 of them so far. And I've already received, and I urge you, if you have additional subjects that you'd like to clarify, then 
again, submit those. And before I read the questions, I want to once again review the list of possible ethics issues. I think that as believers, we could use a little help uh, because I think a lot of Christians are asking, well, how am I supposed to respond to this? What am I supposed to say when this particular thing comes up? I began last week with euthanasia. Now, I didn't give you the Bible scriptures on that. I was just kind of laying the groundwork. And I will probably repeat some of those things just so we keep it in context about euthanasia and how we should treat that. And there's the idea of war. There are wars and rumors of wars around the world. There's the idea of capital punishment, abortion, homelessness, lawlessness, illegal aliens, addressing the use of preferred pronouns, treating people as if they are a different sex than their biology dictates, the sexual deviance issues, the transgenderism, polyamory, pornography, pedophilia, LGBTQ plus issues. Does the Bible direct us to love and accept all of these people and be tolerant of the lifestyles that are out there? You know, after all, Scripture says, and somebody could use this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, it says, I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Those are the people in the church that are sexually immoral. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. So can you associate with people who are idolaters, swindlers, sexually immoral that are of the world and not believers? In other words, are you supposed to tolerate them? And what does tolerate mean? Do you show your acceptance of this? Do you tell them it's incorrect, it's wrong? How do you deal with that? And I think especially now, we need to know. You know, it used to be, if you went down to Hillcrest and some of the stuff that's going on in Hillcrest, if you were in the 50s or 60s, you'd get arrested for doing what they're doing even today. Or the Castro District up in San Francisco, that's just like Hillcrest here in San Diego. So how do we deal with this? Well, this idea, just for a moment, on tolerance. This person wrote about tolerance. Toleration is often just indifference in disguise. We're, I'm not going to deal with that. Just whatever. Is that the supposed, supposed to be the kind of attitude that we communicate to others? Or how about this one? Now, John F. Kennedy. You guys remember him, right? John F. Kennedy, this is what he said. Tolerance implies no lack of commitment to one's own beliefs. Rather, it condemns the oppression and persecution of others. Now, apply that to the homosexual community and what they're doing. Are we oppressing them if we call something evil? And and by the way, I think we need to get used to that word. Being able to say, that's evil. Today, if you say evil, you could offend somebody. And they might be hurt. And you can't use offensive language. You know, and silence is violence. But saying things like that is also considered violence. You, you can't say anything, so just be silent. Don't call anything bad. Because people might be hurt or offended. Do you know who Timothy Keller is? Timothy Keller wrote the book, A Shepherd Takes a Look at Psalm 23. He is a published pastor. Uh, I think he no longer pastors, but he is, quote-unquote, intellectual in the Christian community. He wrote this. Tolerance isn't about not having beliefs. It's about how you believe or how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. 
And then he has this quote, you can believe homosexuality is a sin and still believe that same-sex marriage should be legal. Let me read that again. He said, you can believe homosexuality is a sin and still believe that same-sex marriage should be legal. Do you believe same-sex marriage should be legal? Well, he came out later and said he does not support the legalization of same-sex marriage because there was such an uproar. When we get into this more, I'll I'll give you some more up-to-date happenings with what's going on with that. Well, what about this? Should you attend a gay wedding if you're invited? What about if it's your child and they want you to attend? Should you attend if they are gay? I know a pastor who has a a gay son. I don't know if he's gotten married or not, but do you accept them? If they say they're a Christian, do you accept them into the family or do you say no? And by the way, the Christian community is divided on this. And it is, it's horrible to have to deal with these difficult issues. And what really is the act of love? What would that dictate that you accept them? Or you reject them. Do they call themselves a Christian? Do they not call themselves a Christian? Have they had a deconversion experience, so to speak? How do you treat all of that? Do you just love them? You know, I've heard pastors say that. Just love them. What does that mean to just love them? Now, what do you think about people who think they're animals? I'm telling you. This is out there. If you engage in the culture, especially the young generation that's coming up, I mean, they put on the full outfit and and they're walking around like dogs and critters and squirrels and things like that. And they actually like to play like they're animals. Do you just say, okay, I'm going to tolerate that. Is that the loving thing to do? Or do you say, you're crazy? You know, what do you do? We never had to deal with stuff like this when we were young. You know, we got in trouble for having a comb, taking it out of school and combing your hair, and that was it. And you could get detention for that if you spoke out of turn and you didn't stay quiet in your seat. This is a whole new ball game for us, and we need to know how to deal with those people in our culture that have a propensity to get in these kind of behaviors. Should we adopt the language and attitude of leftist Marxists? Now, you should study up on Marxism and communism and capitalism. And if you're just knowledgeable about that, you'll be able to talk to people uh, with a little bit of reasonableness. But the words that are out there now, do you use the word migrant or illegal alien? Or do you use the word alien versus non-citizen? Because somebody might be offended if you call someone an alien or an illegal alien. What about this? Pedophile versus minor attracted persons. Which one do you use and why do you use them? What about, you're going to like this one. An unpaid sex worker versus girlfriend or wife. Did you catch that? It's feminism coming in there. Or drag queen versus transvestite. 
Which one do you use in describing that, in having a conversation? What about gender-affirming care versus sterilization? Because that's what happens when you give a young person uh, the hormones of the opposite sex. Normally it sterilizes them. They'll never have children after that. Do you think that's on purpose? You see, all of this stuff that's happening in our culture and the ramifications of that, I think that there are what some leaders in the past, evil leaders, have said there are useful idiots. And then there are those who know exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it. And it is evil. And we need to be able to stand up against evil and call evil what it is, that it is wrong. It is something to be avoided. It is something to be condemned. Now, and again, I, I'm, I'm setting the platform, the basis for why I'm going even further into this idea of biblical ethics. And I was listening to a study this last week, and somebody was talking about where we are in our world and the globalization that's taken place. And it was a Christian from a Christian perspective. And they were talking about a possible trifecta that could be in our future. And they're talking about it in 2024, this year that this could happen. Now, just imagine, not that it's going to happen, but just imagine. Are they talking about another pandemic called X, uh, virus X or pandemic X? And they say, you know how many times worse it's supposed to be than the one we just had? They have a number, 20 times worse. And that's what's all over the media. It's going to be 20 times worse than what we went through with COVID. Well, imagine that. And then the world powers say, and there's also a climate emergency, and you put together those two things with China or Russia mount an attack, like China. China, have you seen in the news that China is preparing to hack, and they have been practicing this, to hack our infrastructure systems in the United States, whether water or electricity or uh, like trains, all of that, they're learning how to hack those systems. They're preparing for a future conflict if they're doing it, and the hackers outnumber the U.S. hackers, the white hat hackers, outnumber them 50 to 1 in China. Now put all three of those things together, and then China says, well, we're going to now attack uh, Taiwan. What would we do as the United States... Would we go defend Taiwan or would we say, no, we have enough problems here. And would the government be able to come in and shut us all down? Have you heard, it's either in the past or it's going to take place February 12th through 14th. There's going to be a meeting in Dubai where decisions are going to be made to hand over power, give emergency powers to the WHO organization. Where if there is a pandemic, they can come in and they can tell every country in the world what to do and how to conduct their business. They will tell you how much energy you can use, how much food you can consume, how much freedom you have to exercise, how much you can travel by car or plane. They will dictate how much you can spend the need on needs and luxuries. They, w- they could even go so far, and I've talked about this in the past, last year, maybe beginning of last year, how when Obama was the president, they passed a law that they could regulate your home garden that they could come and confiscate your food in your garden. Because, by the way, and I just heard this last week, home gardening, I forget the percentage, but it's like 30% of global greenhouse gases can be attributed to home gardening. 
And so therefore, it will be a crisis and they can come and take away any food that you have in your garden. And that, that's a law. It is actually H.R. 875 and S-425 if you want to look those up. Okay, so you put all that together. How are you supposed to act as a Christian? Do you go along with it? Do you capitulate? Do you acquiesce and say, well, you know, it's for everyone's good. Put that mask back on and don't go anywhere. Stay in your home. You know, don't use fossil fuels at all. We have a crisis here. The world is going to die. Are you going to say, okay? Are you going to say no? Are you going to risk being arrested? If the voice police, the thought police come along and say, you put too many things on your social media that make us think that you are a terrorist, a white terrorist or you know a Hispanic terrorist but you believe in MAGA or you believe in the Bible or you bought a Bible by the way the FBI was uh, monitoring how many people bought Bibles and how many people wrote MAGA in one of their social media accounts they're keeping track of that guess who they're going to come after if they're gathering that information they're not doing it for benign purposes they're doing it to use it in the future. Okay, so this is where we are in our culture. All of these things that I just gave you, it's time to say, boy, it's a great day in the neighborhood, isn't it? But, but we need to know how to respond to these things and do so as Christ would. Now, Christ, he went and he cleared the temple of the money changers, right? Is that what we do? Because he set that example. What? Okay, I, we're going to talk about that. Or do you just do nothing and say, you know, they're of the world. Like Paul, you know, be tolerant of the people that are out there that are not part of the Christian community. So a few more things. Should we submit to the DEI discriminatory practices, even if it means losing your job? For instance, if you're in a position of management and the management comes along and says, you have to discriminate based on the color of skin. You are in charge of this. You're in HR you need to do this, but it goes against your Christian beliefs. Are you going to say no? Did you see where the FBI and the military are being adversely affected with the implementation of the DEI? There was one case I heard on the radio. And this is where a woman was morbidly obese and she was turned down for a law enforcement um, position because of her obesity and she could not pass the physical requirements of the job she failed those went to the fbi and applied for a job failed everything there but they hired her because they needed a quota on skin color and it's adversely affecting all forms of law enforcement because of this dei enforcement do you think there's going to be any bad ramifications to something like that well, I, I think that doesn't have to be answered. I think you know the answer to that. So do you understand how we're supposed to respond to all of these and more as disciples of Jesus Christ? Let me go into the questions that have been submitted, and then I will get into euthanasia. Now, last week, the question we tackled was Melchizedek in the Old Testament, really Jesus Christ. And I told you no because of the similitude that is used in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 3 which states Melchizedek is like the son of God and if it's like it's something different than what is being referred to and so I would say no now the additional questions that have been submitted number one I have 11 of them 
Orphans and widows, how do we take care of these people nowadays? Are they the same as in biblical days? Number two, what is the Trinity? Like an egg, yolk, egg white, and shell? What is the purpose of each part of the Trinity? What should we do if, God forbid, we are left behind after the rapture? Is it too late? That's a whole study in itself. Number three, aside from prophecy fulfillment and blind faith, what explainable reasons make the Bible believable or real? Number four, the Bible will not seek revenge. Our Bible says not to seek revenge. Uh, but God has said to strike down some people. Why can't I now do the same, an eye for an eye? Do you think this might be hypocritical? Number five. Now, this is a statement more than a question. I wonder why mental illness does not seem to be addressed in the Bible, only possession. We know that uh, psychiatry is flawed due to its not recognizing the nature of sin. So that's a whole subject in and of itself. Uh, Number six, should a person whose brain, not mind, is malfunctioning for whatever reason, take any of the 600 drugs, uh, the psychiatric drugs, which side effects are not understood? Uh, You know, there's additional questions to that, like Ritalin. Should you give those to little boys uh, to keep them calm? Does that affect them in any way adverse? Is that something that a Christian should do or not do? Uh, What about pain drugs? They're prescribed, there are prescribed psychiatric drugs or pain medications, which sorcery in the Bible, it, it, it has nothing to do with worship of idols, but are ta- is taking prescription drugs part of sorcery? You know, and sorcery is condemned in the Bible. Those who practice sorcery will not inherit the kingdom of God. I don't know if that's one of our cars out there that's going off. Uh, you might want to check your um, fob. Number number eight, what is the gift of tongues? Small subject there. Uh, Number nine, how do you know what Matthew 24.4 is? How do you know that Matthew 24.4 is after the rapture because it refers to the Jews and what they're going through? Uh, For example, wars, rumors of wars, nation rise against nation. It sounds like today. This has to do with the timing as it unfolds the time leading up to the rapture, what it's going to be like during the rapture, how do you put that in an order where you can understand what's taking place? Some people would say wars and rumors of wars is after the rapture, not before. Earthquakes and various places, that type of thing, is that before the rapture, after the rapture? And they want an explanation on that. Number 10, how long was the time span of the 10 plagues in Exodus? Was it a year? Was it a month? Was it six months? How long did it take? Uh, Why should I care about rewards in the next life? I just want to get to heaven. I don't care about any rewards. Is that the view we're supposed to have? I just want to get to heaven. I don't care if I have a tricycle when I get up there. I just want to get to heaven. Is that how we're supposed to view the rewards that are waiting for us? Now, we need to just set back for the next few weeks and comfortably take in God's word as it reveals both the ethical dilemmas and the theological question that has answers for those. We just need to sit back and, and just take these in. And I think it's worth taking several weeks to go through this because it's relevant to the day in which we live. We simply don't want to learn Bible stories and truths and not apply them. We want to be able to apply them. Now, euthanasia... Definition, it's the purposeful, active killing of an individual or an act that leads to the acceleration of death, no matter the reason for justification. Or in other words, 
an act that causes death. That's euthanasia. It is also known as mercy killing. It is employed, as it is believed, to relieve the suffering, whether perceived or real, in an individual who may or may not have a terminal illness. They may just simply be distraught or depressed. And the answer is increasingly becoming, well, just end it. You know, if it's that bad, just go ahead and end it. Now, there is a scriptural story about purposely ending a life of an individual that was going to die anyway. Do you guys know what that story is? King Saul. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 31 and verse 1. I want to give you the whole story here about what's taking place. And we're going to go into 2 Samuel chapter 1. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 1 says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Verse 2 of 1 Samuel chapter 31. The Philistines pressed hard against Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically, so he was shot with an arrow. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. So he was first shot with an arrow. His armor-bearer wouldn't kill him, so he takes his own sword and he falls on his own sword. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. Now, there is more information here that we'll get to in Second Samuel, but let's just keep reading. When the Israelites, verse 7, along the valley of those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their town and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Asherahs and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshean. Now, if, since we didn't go to Israel, we would have gone to Bethshean and they would have showed you exactly where Saul was placed on a wall and his sons. Unfortunately, we weren't able to go there. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshean and went to Jabesh, where they burned them, and they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fast, fasted seven days. Now, some more additional information here in Second Samuel chapter 1. It says in verse 1, after the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell on the ground to pay him honor. 
Where have you come from, David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened, David asked. Tell me. He said, the man fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul, leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around, he saw me. He called out to me and said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, Stand over me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I am still alive. So remember, he was shot with an arrow, fell on a sword. He's still alive. He asked his armor bearer to kill him. He didn't kill him. So this guy comes along, and we see what happens here. Verse 10, so I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. I took the crown that was on his head and his band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord, the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young men who brought him the report, where are you from? I am a son of an alien and a Malachite, he answered. David asked him, why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, go and strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. So here's a case where somebody comes in, knows he, the Malachite, knows that Saul is going to die. Saul says, kill me. And he goes, okay, and he kills him. So we get all the information here. What did David do? He said, you are guilty. You killed the Lord's anointed. You killed the king. But is it limited to the Lord's anointed? And who is the Lord's anointed? Now, it can be argued that this was a special anointing, and because he killed the special anointed one, that's the reason it was wrong. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you consider yourself having received a special anointing? Bible says yes. You have been anointed with the oil of joy, also anointed with the Holy Spirit. Acts 4.26 says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. Jesus was the anointed one. King Saul was the anointed one. But also, 1 John chapter 2, verse 20 says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. Referring to other Christians. We are all anointed by God. That's a special anointing. But we want a truth that is going to apply not only to Christians, but also to non-Christians. How do we deal with this? The euthanasia. Do we uh, conduct ourselves in such a way where we perform mercy killings? Is that acceptable to God? Is that not acceptable to God? Is it only prohibited for Christians? Or is it prohibited also for those who are unbelievers? Because this, this is taking place more and more throughout our society. Now, this anointing thing, it's still a debatable subject, but just for the purposes of going on here, I'm going to say whether you're anointed with the Holy Spirit or you are not anointed with the Holy Spirit, God considers every human being special. And if you take that life purposely, no matter what the circumstances, there is going to be a judgment because of that. Now, in Scripture, and as far as I'm aware, 
there could be an exception, but whenever a life is taken out, taken outside of the context of the direction of the Lord, war or capital punishment, those three things. If a life is taken, if somebody is killed as a result of the Lord saying that person needs to die. And by the way, God's not going to tell you that today. I just want to make clear. So crazy people are out there saying, God told me to kill that person. No, God did not tell you to do that because that would be killing. The only people who get to kill in a quote unquote righteous fashion is the government. The government are the governments around the world are the ones that are given the power to take life and death according to Romans chapter 13. So it must be either in the context of war or capital punishment. In the Old Testament, it would have been the Lord saying so, like in the book of Judges. Book of Judges, there was really no government. There were just judges, and they said, go and take this uh, person or go and take this city. Now, are we to provide uh, palliative care for somebody who is dying? Yes, we are. And what does that mean? You help make their life easier, what is left of it, soothing, relaxing, comforting, calming care. You can give them sedatives, anesthetics, whatever you have available, you can give to them. Now I'm going to qualify that in a minute. Proverbs chapter 31 verse 6 says, Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that are of heavy hearts. So, in other words, if somebody is just grieving beyond measure or if somebody is going to die, the scripture says specifically of the one who is going to die, give them any drug. Just take them out of their misery. That's why in hospice, they will give morphine to somebody who is going to die. And they get to regulate how much morphine they give themselves. It's self-administered. And I think scripture is clear on that, that that is a good thing to relieve suffering. There's so many centuries where there was no anesthetic at all. If you wanted a tooth pulled, you're just going to have to deal with it. You know, and I would have recommended if, you know, if you have a wisdom tooth, it's impacted, it's infected, something like that. And it was 300 years ago or a thousand years ago, I would have found some wine somewhere and said drink this first to where it just kind of knocks them out and pull that tooth that would be a case i think you can relieve suffering but you wouldn't do that on a normal day hey it's friday here you go here's six gallons go ahead and drink it no you wouldn't do that okay but to relieve suffering in, in an egregious fashion you know that that suffering just consumes the person do something to help relieve that suffering. I think that that's biblical to do that. So any drug that is available to relieve the suffering before the onset of death, we should administer if possible. And I think that that should be done under the guidance of a doctor. You know, it, it isn't something you should take under your own care. Say, well, you know, I got these Valium. Would you like six of them? You know, you just don't. Don't do that. Talk to a doctor and see what the doctor says about administering some type of anesthetic for somebody who is dying. And they will give you information on how to do that. Now, uh, this is a time where a believer can show mercy to somebody who is perishing. And if we actively, through the purposeful action, cause the death of an individual, that is called murder in Scripture. But if we passively, through the purposeful action, like withholding medical devices, allow the death of an individual to take place through natural processes, it is not a sin. We are doing what is right. 
Did you catch that? I want to make sure you understand that. Don't do anything to accelerate death. And I'm actively. Do everything you can to allow the person to pass comfortably and let the natural processes take place. That is the difference between a mercy killing and euthanasia and just letting somebody pass on from this life. I will say this too, that people who are given the decision-making power over somebody's life in a hospital situation, I don't think that there are many things that rise above the anxiety level that somebody has to go through to make that decision. That is extremely difficult because you hold in the power of your hands the ability to let somebody die. And that is hard, especially since we know as believers what God considers life to be. And so we're to look at life as something that is sacred. And we are not to take these types of responsibilities lightly. So just as a general overview, what about pulling the plug? Is that considered murder? No, it allows an individual to die when what might otherwise sustain a body for an indefinite period of time while there is no brain function. Now, there's some caveats with this. But as stated previously, we do not possess the ability to keep the body functioning without the normal aid, or we do possess the ability to keep the body functioning without the normal aid of an intact functioning brain. We can keep that heart pumping. We can keep the pulmonary system going. And we can feed them and just continue that for years and years and years. And there are people like that. Now, uh, for most of us who have to make this decision, as I said previously, it is probably the top anxiety uh, producer in those individuals that have to make those types of choices. Removing external medical devices to keep a body alive when there is no discernible brain activity is a merciful thing to do. It's mercy for a believer especially it's mercy to let them pass don't keep them here extending beyond their appointed day to meet their maker let them go but we don't want to do that sometimes for very selfish reasons what if the will wasn't intact just right keep them alive until we can fix this thing I mean, and by the way, that's a whole nother subject, how you deal with family going through the death of somebody who is older, a patriarch or a matriarch, and there are so many problems associated with that, and how do you deal with that? The, the, the blanket answer to that is, don't let money be your guide. Let God be your guide on that. What if you don't get anything out of it? Oh, well, you're not going to take it with you. Well, that's fine for you to say. It could have been a million dollars. Okay, so you're out a million dollars. You don't think God is able to take care of you in the midst of that? He is. But see, our, our flesh wants to get in the way of those things. Like it's mine. Remember the Finding Nemo, the seagulls? Mine? 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 That's what they did. Is it? No, everything is God's and he gives us what we need. So getting back on track here. If life support is removed from a person and they keep on breathing and their heart keeps on pumping, God still wants them here. Now, how long might that last? Well, not sure. Should you make their lives comfortable as long as they are still alive? Yes. So I I know I'm being redundant on some of this, 
but I just want to make sure you guys understand what we're supposed to do. Now there is, as I previously mentioned, a code C. A code C, they may have changed the name of it by now, but a code C is withholding food and water and making the person expire, quote unquote, is what they're doing. I think that the justifications for withholding food and water for people who do that, they would say the quality of life has been degraded. Uh, it's a financial burden. It is a physical hardship for the family or the family member who is the caregiver. Uh, the insurance company will or will not cover the care. Uh, it's just plain inconvenient. And so they withhold food and water. I think it's immoral. I think it's wrong. I think it's evil to do that. Now, if you were to withhold food and water from somebody who was conscious, you would say that's torture. But if you withhold food and water from somebody who seems to be comatose, but you're not sure, no EEG has been given, that is also torture. It is a human being that is there, and they're still suffering to some degree. We're supposed to lessen that suffering. Now, this is a difficult decision. And there may be exceptions to that rule, but I would say they would be extremely rare. I, I, I don't want to say there's not an exception, because there could be, but I don't know at this time what that might be. The bottom line is, I believe, according to the scriptures, we're never knowingly actively supposed to bring about the death of an individual. Now, there is also a caveat I want to leave with you. If someone is hooked up to life support systems and a medical professional comes in and says there is little to no chance that your loved one, a spouse, a child, extended family member is going to recover and the most wonderful thing you could do is donate their organs. Now this is something that is real and taking place and I listened to a doctor talk about this. If they intend to do this before that person is taken off life support that you should refuse to allow them to take the organs. Now, why? It's because the first thing I ask is, did you perform an EEG, which tells you if the brain is functioning? Or did they just come in, did a hospital administrator come in and say, you know, we'd like to use the organs of your loved one to save somebody else's life. My first question would be, did you do an EEG? Do you know if the person has brain activity? Do you know if they're alive in there, but you're going to go take their organs and some of the organs they want to take while the person is still hooked up to keep things fresh, so to speak. You don't know if that person, in that slight chance it may be, but you don't know if that person is cognizant what's going on. Have you ever heard the story about people in comas that know what's going on outside? What if you were in a coma and they said, well, you're not going to make it. And then they start opening you up. And yeah, and one doctor said, this happens on a regular basis because they, there is such profit, tens of thousands of dollars in organ donations. And so people can be non-conscious, at least as far as we can tell, but they can be cognizant and they can go under the knife and their organs be removed and they surely will die. And that would be a case where you are killing the person actively if you do that. And so the question I would give again, is there an EEG that's been given? And if they say yes, and there's no brain activity, okay, I might consider it in that case. But this happened with my father. My father, when he passed, 
he passed naturally and they said they'd like to donate his eyes and we all agreed yes that's fine because he had already passed and it has to happen within so many minutes you know and, and we understand that so I want you to be careful to really uh, understand what goes on in the medical community the medical com- community is not looking after your best interest they are looking after the bottom line and they want to make sure they're making a profit in any way that they can do that they will do that that's why the abortion industry is so tainted with evil and these types of practices are evil so to clarify I am not a doctor I don't pretend to be a doctor it's just a moral determination take no proactive steps to purposely into life and always opt for the natural passing of a person you are making a decision for the final thing is self-inflicted euthanasia these people who come along and I've known people who have done this they've decided they have a terminal illness and they're not going to eat or drink anymore they're going to accelerate their own death I think that is also sin uh, because you're taking your own life you're for us God has determined the day and the month of our death and we can accelerate that we know that the book of Ecclesiastes says do not be over wicked or do not be a fool why die before your time we can die before the appointed time you are taking charge of your own life and death and the Lord says that is only my determination and so if somebody says I'm going to withhold food and water for myself and I'm going to expire I'm going to die I would counsel them don't because I believe that to be a sin in scripture that self murder is what that is and the church historically has always been against uh, suicide uh, related question well does a person go to heaven if they commit suicide do they not that, that's a whole nother subject on that I, I don't think committing a sin um, sends you to hell except the sin of not believing in Jesus Christ that's the one that sends you to hell whether the person is saved or not that tries to do that it, yeah, I'm going to leave that for God to decide uh, so that's closely related to euthanasia which is assisted suicide and now would you take somebody to a cliff and say okay you asked me to drive you here so you could jump off you would say no you can't do that well would you drive somebody to a dignity with death building so that they could kill themselves would you do that what about physician assisted suicide they call it pad that's where a doctor comes in gives you a shot or a pill says take this and you'll end your life very common I gave you a list of states that are doing that right now would you drive somebody to do that would you participate in that well that's what they wanted isn't that the loving thing to do just have no part in assisting somebody that wants to kill themselves remember Jack Kevorkian Dr. Death assisted in over 130 suicides because he wanted this at the forefront he challenged prosecutors to prosecute him he went to jail seven or eight years they released him because he was also terminal and he died and that's what brought about this movement of euthanasia 1053 I was going to do one theological question number one orphans and widows but that's going to have to wait till next week because we're going to receive communion this morning just a final word on euthanasia it's difficult it is the most as I said previously anxiety producing act probably that we can get involved with and we never want to have a part in accelerating the death of somebody but let them 
in comfort as much as is possible go through the process of death naturally that's what the Bible would tell us to do and consider life sacred and nothing else let's pray Father we thank you for your word and, and how it gives us clear direction and for the story of King Saul and what happened with that and David and the Amalekite that gives us some insight and we know that there are other scriptures that would address this Lord and if we have additional questions anyone who is here I pray that you would meet those questions with answers and Father as we prepare to receive communion here we consider your life precious and sacred and yet you gave it up for us may we do the same thing in regard to your life may we always hold it as holy and something that is blessed because you have given that life to us eternally in Jesus name Amen now what's going to happen is Kim is going to play a song the ushers will come up and they'll turn off the middle lights and then we'll go ahead and distribute the bread and the cup and hold on to it until we can participate in receiving it together